It's January 7th, 2010, and this is The Candid Frame. Happy New Year and welcome to a new episode of the show. It should be an exciting year and I'm looking forward to sharing some great conversations with you in 2011. Unfortunately, this year begins on a sad note. A good friend of mine and former guest of the show, Don Gale, passed away last month after a long battle with cancer. I've met a lot of talented photographers over the years, but I can honestly say that Don was was one of the most generous and sincerest people It's been my pleasure to know. He was a phenomenal photographer, but was an even better human being and friend, and anyone who had the opportunity to spend time with him could testify to that. He will be missed. I'll provide a link to my interview with him on the blog site, and I hope that you'll take a listen uh, to our conversation if you haven't already. When I started the show almost four years ago, I had a short list of photographers I definitely wanted to interview for this show. And today's guest was high up on that list. National Geographic photographer William Albert Allard may not be a name you are familiar with, but you are familiar with his images. In my opinion, he is one of the most amazing color photographers in the world today, and his use of light is nothing short of remarkable. Allard has produced phenomenal photographs under conditions that many people would stop shooting in, And he delivers photographs that are nothing short of stunning. I own all the monographs that he's released of his work, including his latest book, Five Decades, a retrospective of his amazing career. I can't recommend this book enough. If you only purchase one photographic book this year, this has to be the one. I've learned so much from looking at his work over the years, and I continue to marvel at the brilliance of his eye. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with William Albert Allard. Well, Bill, welcome to the Candid Frame. It's it's a pleasure to have you. My pleasure. Uh, thank you for asking. I've been a longtime fan of your work, um, and and I'm real. And one of the things that's always appealed to me is your use of color. And you you make an interesting statement that I've read before in terms that you don't separate color from composition and i'm curious to hear what you what you mean by that well what i really say and i and i write about it in in my new book that actually ironically just came out two days ago uh i don't have the vocabulary of a designer or someone who can really tell you oh red is over here and it's doing this or that push pull whatever i think I think to begin with, I think color is very intuitive with all of us. Uh, I think we all have our own sensitivities to, to color in our in our own ways, and uh, I can't I can't explain it really, and, and it's a little frustrating to me in that regard. But I think I can feel it. I just think I can feel color. I don't go out and hardly ever. I think do I go out and I consciously think about a palette or something, or oh, occasionally maybe when I see a certain kind of light. Because photography is all about light, isn't it? It's really all about light and color photography. 
is all about light and the color of light and a lot of other things, many of them psychological. And as I say, I can't really articulate well about it, but I think I can feel it. I just think I can feel color. And to me, color and composition are kind of inseparable. I mean, I, when we put together a picture, a candid photograph, and this is really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about street shooting where you have no control over anything. Uh, you know, and I'm a people shooter. Whatever the people chose to wear that morning when they went out on the street, that's what I deal with. Whatever light I have, I deal with. I've also been quoted as saying there's no such thing as bad light. It's taking the light you're given and using it. Well, I believe that is true. Uh, you know, we all like those magic times, often early in the day or late in the afternoon or early evening, when the light becomes soft, the shadows are long, it gives you modeling, it gives form. But at high noon, when the light is high and harsh and the shadows are, 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 are hard, well, use it somehow or get the hell out in the shade somewhere. But... Basically, that's that's kind of what I'm talking about. Uh, when I go out, I just I, I see you're putting together a puzzle when you make a candid photograph. Often, in just moments of time, and there's there's no real time to think about it. I have one, you know, one of my favorite. I don't have a favorite photograph, but one of the photographs I continue to feel strongly about is a photograph I made in Peru, where I just went back and forth to this one place because I knew it was a space that I could deal with, that I could put together an image. I did one year and I came back and I looked at those photographs and I thought, you know, that, that, that's very nice, but I think if I could go back one more time, I could do it better. Just by watching the light and watching the shadows. And it's a photograph that to this day when I look at it, I'm a little bit, you know, I just wonder, okay, how, just how the hell does that work, the way those shadows, what they're doing? It's kind of strange, but uh, sometimes, you know, we take a space and we almost lie in wait in ambush. Uh, I write a little bit about that in my new book, but other times where you're just going on and, and you see something, you react to it, and it's got to be in the subconscious because there's no time to think of it. Yeah. I made a photograph in Sicily back in, I think it was 94, and I was driving back with my uh, young guy who was working with me as a translator and a driver. And I looked out, and in the far distance, I could see these various levels of light happening. Uh, in the far distance, a house from some past century was standing there under, fall, under lovely late afternoon sunlight falling, and then the shadows had come, and there's a middle ground that is, is shaded. And then in the foreground, I see this band of sheep coming across. And I said, Mazen, we'll stop the car. And I jumped out, I can't remember what I was using now. I probably was using a Canon camera I'd drawn an icon recently, but uh, I, I jumped out of the car, and when I jumped out, that's when I saw these wild roses, I think. There were some wildflowers in the foreground, and they were blood red. So I quickly grabbed my strobe. I quickly dialed the uh, angle of it down as narrow as I could because I just wanted to hit those flowers with a little bit of, of light and everything else was ambient. And, you know, that was film. There was no monitor to look at. There was no, oh, let me, this. let me see if I've got that. You either get it or you don't. There's no time to think about it. You know, so often if you start thinking about it, the picture's gone. Mm. That's a long answer to your question. I'm sorry. You know, one of the things I've always, I've, I've, I've looked at your work. I've looked at all your books. I've, I've, 
And I've learned so much from looking at those photographs. And one of the things that I learned uh, from you is that you would shoot under lighting conditions that other people would walk away from and say, oh, you can't shoot here because there, there's yeah. not enough light or the light isn't good enough. And you were working with largely Kodachrome for a lot of these assignments, which is yeah. relatively low ISO and a very narrow uh, dynamic range. But you would make images that were absolutely remarkable. Spe speak about that willingness to really push the limits of, of at the time, film in your camera. Well, first of all, you know, let's uh, thank God for naivete sometimes because I fell into color uh, by falling into this. My first professional job was with National Geographic magazine. I kind of came in over the transom, if you will, starting at the top. I was an intern, but that quickly changed to a contract and then a staff and whatever. But I had no color experience before I got there. I remember Bob Gilka asking me that he was the director of photography there and I was in his office kind of by accident just in showing my portfolio and he offered me an internship he saw I was married and had four kids he said if you can get anything else you better take it because it doesn't pay anything it'll be all over in the fall and I said well you know I wasn't cocky it just came out I said well I've been broke for five years another three months won't kill me and you might want to keep me and then he said well how do you feel about color I said doesn't bother me and to this day, I consider that an absolute, honest answer. But how could it bother me? I'd never used it, you know. So as soon as I went home, I bought a 20 exposure roll of, uh wasn't Kodachrome, it was an Ektachrome. I, I still have that roll. In fact, I've, uh, we publish in my new book one picture from that roll. And I didn't like color at first. Uh, you know, I considered myself in those days to be a pretty good printer. I could go down the lab because I was married. I'd go on these marathon lab ventures where I'd go down and I'd go down in late afternoon, come out at dawn. But I loved it. I loved that process. And those were days of fiber-based paper, various filters when you went to the, uh, the multi-filtered paper. And I look back now and I, you know, and I was using, I was working thin negatives. Because uh, as a married guy, a lot of my school projects would have to be done at night. Maybe they were interiors. And I was using Tri-X. I didn't push it beyond, it's, I think it's 400. And um, I had a lot of thin negatives a lot of times. And, uh, and then when I went to Geographic, it just never occurred to me that I couldn't uh, take the same kind of pictures I like to take even with this film that was that one, you know, Kodachrome 2, which was ASA 25, was an absolutely beautiful film. I mean, you could paint with that. The later Kodachrome 25s were good, too, but that Kodachrome 2 had something special. And then I think EPA, uh, the Kodak never really talked about it. I think that a change was made, I think, because of environmental issues. Anyway, I was using film that was 25, that was before Kodachrome 2, I beg your pardon, before Kodachrome 200, which was one of the best films Kodak ever came up with. And I just thought, well, I just have to hold the camera more steady. Uh, and I, I would lose pictures to subject motion or my own. But uh, And I didn't really know how to use flash well, and we didn't have the automated strobes that we have now. Uh, and flash, you know, t just the slightest bit of too much flash destroys 
the ambiance that attracted you to begin with. And I, and I love looking at low-light things. I love things around the edges uh, and theater things. I love bar light. Although I remember Kodak coming once to the Geographic with a couple of guys in suits and ties and charts and that and talking about their films. Uh, and I was a big lover of Kodachrome. But I did tell them one point, I said, I don't think Kodachrome 200 is always a real good bar film. And they looked at me like talking some other language. But what I meant was that it had so much warmth in it to begin with that it had beautiful grain. It had grain, but it was gritty. It was tight. You know, it was character. It was it had a character of the film. But if you got in some of that uh, artificial reds, uh, you just it would just let be a, like a Rorschach test. Uh, mm-hmm. Lose all your definition around the edges. I remember going into a uh, stripper bar with some. Uh, minor league ball players once, and I shot everything on it. Kodachrome 200. Oh, I should have shot it on uh, something tungsten based or something else because I just lost all the all the definition around the edges. But that was uh, that was a great great film 200. All of the Kodachromes were wonderful, and uh, in terms of how I worked, that that's the way I worked. I just have to hold my camera a little more steady, um, balance it. Uh, you know. Brace it on top of a beer bottle, whatever, you know, make yourself into a tripod. It's a lot like shooting a handgun or something, you know, when, when you, how you breathe and how you let that out. I mean, an eighth of a second is a piece of cake. That should be easy. Fourth of a second also. Once you start getting into a half or beyond in terms of hand-holding, it gets a little tough. And now, of course, the digital cameras see in the dark. And I'm having trouble adjusting to that. I, I was so used to working something taking exposure as far as I could, and then it would just fall off the table, and I, I just couldn't do it. I'd go out and have a beer or something. But now, I mean, you can put that digital camera in the closet and take a picture in there if you'd like. Uh, that's I'm I, having a little, little trouble with that. Yeah, that's one, that's one of the things I was curious about, because I know you only came into using cameras fairly fairly recently, and I was... Think, cameras, yeah. yeah, and I was... Five thinking, years. Five years? Okay. Five years. And I was thinking that, you know, when you're working with film, you're working with a fairly fixed sort of color palette. You, you know, if you know a film really well, you know exactly yeah. what kind of color it will give you uh, right. under certain kinds of light. Right. But with, with digital, there is a certain flexibility that you, you can evoke from the image as a result of, you know, changing yeah. the white balance or how you end up yeah. importing it into Photoshop. I'm having, yeah. so but how, I'm having trouble with that also. Okay. Yeah. So tell so tell me uh, about that in terms of how you are adapting the way that you have traditionally seen and photographed with with the digital camera. Well, I'm trying not to uh, change in any way, and, but I am having trouble because I'm shooting raw file, and you get back and you put it on the computer, and you think, "Geez, that doesn't have much guts to it, does it?" You know. And, uh, it's because it's not a pro- it's a, it, that the, there's a process that yet has to be done. Everybody says, "Well, think about it like you're shooting negative." And I never shot in negative film after school, after black and white. I never shot. I never did care for negative color. I always thought it was too porous. I mean, some people used it well. Maybe I think I don't know Stephen Shore's work or any of Eggleston's work was in uh, negative color, but they had that kind of slightly washed out look. And I was looking for something with more saturation or more gutty. And, of course, when I look 
when I look at my digital, there's always a little bit of depression because they all kind of look flat, but they haven't been processed. Uh, and at this point, I still don't know how to do that myself. I'm, I'm kind of technically challenged in the digital world, and I've got a long way to go. I would eventually like to be able to sit down, do Photoshop, do everything that needs to be done to take that image and make it the way it is. And the other thing that has bothered me about digital, of course, is there's no such thing really as an original anymore, is there? You know, I mean, in my bank vault, uh, all my the my originals, the pictures I care most about, uh, except for a few that I might not be able to find, are somewhere. And, and I know where they are, and they're in those little mounts, cardboard mounts, which you probably should take them out so they don't scum up around the edges. But they are there. They are original. There's maybe a near dupe, but in most cases with people like myself, you don't have you don't have dupes of your best stuff. It was a moment. Now, uh, God knows how many sets of pictures I make. When I'm not going out on an assignment for Geographic, I've got a set. The picture editor's got everybody's got a set. Hmm. And the first time on my first assignment, I was fortunately working with Ken Geiger, who's a picture editor and, and one of the real digital experts at National Geographic. And he wanted to because I I chose to make a Hutterites a story about the Hutterites in Montana. My first digital project, and I didn't, I never use an assistant in the States uh, because I have no need for one. I speak pretty good English, but, <laughs> and I don't carry a lot of stuff. And I thought, well, do I bring an assistant to help me with the digital? And I thought, no, I don't want to do that because he or she will have to live offshore someplace because I want to be the only non-Hutterite living on the colony. I don't want to muddy the waters with another non-Hutterite. And then I thought, you know, these people all go to bed around 9 o'clock or so. They all break for a nap after lunch. So during those times, uh, in the break times, I can be in my room and downloading pictures. And then if I have problems, I can call Ken. I called him almost an average of probably once or twice a day. Uh, and then when I got back and we looked at the work, and then he said, well, now I'll tweak them. I'll process them. I said, well... You'll tweak them, but I will be right at your side because I was there. I mean, the thing with a digital photograph is, you know, who's who's who has authorship? Well, it should. It's obviously the photographer. I don't want an editor or someone else saying, "Well, see, I think I'd like to make this a little more moody." Uh, I'm sorry, sir, but you know, were you there? I was there. So that that's the thing that bothers me a little bit, and you have to be a little guarded about digital. I, I'm giving very long answers to your question. No, that, that, that's fine. This is great. In, in terms of author, authorship, let's talk about the, the, the photo stories that you did for, for Geographic. Uh -huh. um, with, with film, you would shoot your, your transparencies, your slides, and then you would ship all that film uh, right. out to the Geographic offices, and you didn't have the benefit of looking at the photographs as you were, you were shooting oh, no. them. So talk about the process of of sending the images out there and then working with an editor to refine that all those thousands of you know frames that you you shot get narrowed down to you know 12 15 photos that end up yeah. in the final spread. What, yeah, how, we just Go ahead. Yeah, talk about your collaboration with an editor and making that happen, because I think a lot of people think you just make great photographs and they just end up in the magazine. 
No, 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 it's uh, not quite that easy. Although uh, the similarities between digital and film in terms of that relationship of photographer to picture editor, uh, they're, they're pretty close. Uh, you have, obviously, when you're out in the field, you have the advantage of looking at your stuff. And I make a pre-edit uh, only in the sense that I, I, I'll mark in red or whatever when I send a hard drive in with my with my my take from the weeks or months or whatever I was out there, I'll mark ones I think are worth considering, you know. And I've seen them. So that, that's a big difference because in the days of film, of course, I wouldn't see my work until maybe a month or two months later and I'd come back. Uh, and mixing light, which I, I, I love to do sometimes almost to a fault, I think, when I was working with film, just a little bit of them, of, of on, more often than not, on camera strobe mixed with the ambient light and for a while that was very intuitive and then I kind of came up with a formula we're using a, one of the little automatic strobes for, and it, this again is, a, is something I'm having a little bit more trouble dealing with in digital because uh, of that high sensitivity the light that these digital cameras have but anyway I can look at those pictures and pretty much get an idea, although I'm learning, uh, I'm slowly learning that I'm not to count on looking at the monitor for most of anything except perhaps the moment, you know, because it look, might look good and I get back and see, well, it's really not sharp or it's this or that, or I might be using a camera that's, that's not showing me quite a hundred percent of what I'm seeing. I, I com I've composed tightly over the course of my career. And when I get back and see something in the frame that I, that I consciously didn't want at the time I made the exposure. It's a little upsetting because it's there and it means you're going to have to crop in a little bit. But, you know, I can live with that. But um, then what happens in either case, whether it's shooting film or, or digital, I try to get some feedback from my editor while I'm in the field. You know, what do you think? You know, what do you think? Uh, and now, of course, we can we can have he can send things out to me if if we want. We can and we can edit by 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 telephone over the computer. I've done that with uh, one of the editors on uh, not on this story. I'm currently working on in Montana, but a, a previous story. And then when I get back, I mean the final thing is I get back and I'll sit at Ken's side and we'll go through as we did about. Um, I came back from was at Perpignan, France for that. Um, Visa Pour l'Homage Festival. I had an exhibit there, and when I came back, I stopped in Washington so we could have a uh, what we call a midway. We used to call it a midway tray. We still use the term tray, although nobody's loading a carousel tray anymore. That's for sure. And we show the editors the point we're at on a given assignment. And right now, I was more like three quarters of the way through. And Ken and I will sit there and we'll go through everything, and we'll we'll make a. a he will. I will have made a, a big selection of my pre-edits, maybe four or five hundred. He will make whatever he does, and we'll bring it all down, bring it all down, bring it all down, until I think we showed quite a few. We showed. I think we may have shown as much as fifty or sixty to Chris Johns and the other editors uh, recently. We bring it down to that point, uh, and. Then we'll do when I'm done, when I'm finally done, and uh, my wife and I drive back to Virginia from Montana in November. I'll be finished here, and I'll get up to Geographic, and, and Ken and I will sit down once again, look at the work that's been done since that three-quarters uh, point, 
uh, cut it way down, and again, put together a selection to project uh, that will be probably, I'd say, between 40 and 50 images. And then those, they get seen. A layout session is scheduled, and then we go in the layout room, and, you know, depending on how many pages we have, you know, if we can get 22 pages for this particular story, I'd be happy. I mean, 24, 26 would be wonderful, but it's really getting hard to get space. You know, the old days of going out and having a story that would commonly get 34, 36, maybe even 38 pages, those those days are long gone, mm. unless it's something very special, such as the, the special oil issue they just had. And we'll cut it, we'll cut it down. Then we'll go in the layout room, and it's amazing how fast that space goes because of a 22-page story, well, it might, might have a dozen pictures. You know, that may be it. Um, and all the kids don't get to be in the parade. And if you've done, uh, if you've done your work, if you if you're worth a damn, and you you ought to have a whole lot of pictures that are that you'd love to have in there, but there's just no space. They may echo each other, for instance. They may say basically the same thing or similar similar thing. Uh, you you got it's you know you you've got to build a balanced layout, subject wise, and uh, it's there's a whole lot of things. Uh, am I making my answers too long? No, no, this is great. This is great stuff. Um, I imagine right. I imagine that when you're working with an editor to try to cull down all those images to you know, the 12 or 15 that finally end up, that sometimes there can be some really heated and and you know passionate debates in terms of what gets into the final spread. What do you think is important for the relationship that the editor have for the photographer for 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 that will really help to serve the ultimate story that's trying to be told? Well, I think. Uh... There's, you know, I've, there's been heated, heated moments years ago in my career. I was not, not so much in the, in the picture editing point as in the layout stage. Because layout's where it, where it all comes to a head, and that's, that's, the, that's the critical spot. And it took me a long time to realize you just can't walk in and say, okay, this is all wrong. What the hell's wrong with you? This is wrong, you know. Uh, these people are talented. These people have faith in their own abilities. And, uh, you know, if, if you don't agree, there's a way to disagree. And it took me a long time to understand that. But as far as my relationship with picture editors, you'd like to think that a picture editor, well, you'd like to think there's a mutual respect. Um, I've worked with a lot of good picture editors. One of the very best was John Schneeberger, who uh, was also my best friend, and he passed away about six years ago. Uh, he was very, very good. Uh, Ken Geiger, I'm working with today, is an excellent editor in a whole different way. But, you know, there's been occasion over the years when I think, and I might even have to tell the director of photography that as far as I was concerned, I... I I would prefer not to work with that editor again, but that's a rare case, you know. And then there have been times when somebody really wasn't looking at pictures while I was gone, and that's okay. I, I That's all right with me. If you want me to be my own editor, fine, but I really would like to know that at the start of the game, you know, instead of coming back and finding that nothing has really been looked at. But that has been very, very rare. Mm -hmm. uh, so, 
you know, you, you, you might have favorite editors. Uh, there's, there's some editors that I have never worked with. Uh, or have wanted to, but it just didn't happen, right? You, you try to. Ma- I, th- I think sometimes, sometimes it might be almost as important uh, to match the editor, the picture editor, to the photographer as it is to match the story to the photographer. Over the years um, at Geographic, there have been moments when I thought, "Why in the hell did that?" That they give that story to that person. They weren't. They're not right for it. Doesn't mean that that photographer wasn't any good, but maybe he or she was not really right for that particular story. You know, it's one thing to stretch yourself, and I've tried to do that over the years. Try to challenge myself a little bit, not to try to do the same thing over and over again. Uh, but sometimes there's something. There's a lot of stuff I would not be right for. And it's true with, with most photographers. And most photographers tend to be specialists in their own way, you know. But uh, anyway, you want, you know, you'd like to have that happy match of editor to photographer. Your first assignment while you were still an intern was to photograph a Amish community that had proved elusive to other photographers and yeah. that was a real breakthrough for, for you. But it's, it's also been said that that particular story really changed the way that Natural Geographic saw how people were photographed and illustrated in the magazine. From your perspective, what do you think that change was? Well, I'm, you know, I'm, every time I hear that, it, it makes me feel good, and I hope it's true. Uh, I certainly didn't go out of my way to try to change the magazine. I just was who I was. I mean, I, was, I'm a, I came in there as a people photographer. My interest in photography was people. I wanted to be a writer before wanting to be a photographer. So I had a lot of different kind of things going. And I just worked the only way I knew how to work. And I came back with these pictures. And and they ran the story, and they had tried earlier. They had a finished manuscript, actually. That, But, you know, the thing is, Bob Gilker was the director of photography there. He didn't tell me that they had sent a staff photographer to try to photograph the Amish, and he had come back without anything. They sent me, Bob Gilker sent me to this Kutztown, Pennsylvania, Dutch festival. Well... It was one of those, you might see some Amish at it, but it was more of a festival for non-Amish than anything else. But he said, when you're out there, see if you can't get some pictures of the Amish. So I did, and I was supposed to go out for a weekend or so, and I started sending in pictures by, uh, you know, as mail as quick as you could then. And as soon as they started seeing my pictures, they said, well, you just stay out there. You know? And I stayed out, and I continued working. They ran the story... What it was, was an intimacy, if you will, pure and simple, nothing terribly profound, but the lead picture is a very simple portrait, but I, I like making portraits. I'm, I'm, I love the human face. I love to look at it, uh, and I love to photograph it. And it's a simple and, and direct photograph of an Amish boy with his suspenders, one of them held with a safety pin. It's not, and it's not schlocky. It's not corny. Uh, he's got this, this, he looks like he's about 14 years old, this pure skin and the 
in his hat, and he's holding this guinea pig. One of his fingers is bandaged around the end of the finger. And that ran as the lead picture, and that absolutely jump-started my career. And it was, uh, ironically, the story ran in, I think it was July 1965, yeah, because I did the story in 64. And it ran in a special issue that was all uh, that was structured around Winston Churchill's funeral. And inside the magazine was, at that point, I think the largest pressing ever of a 45 RPM record of his speeches. And that's kind of a collector's item issue. I, not because of my story, but because <laughs> of the record and, and the Churchill and everything else. But whenever I go into antique shops, I'm always looking for my stories because Geographic used to have a storehouse full of old, you know, older issues they don't have anymore, so they're getting harder to find. But that it was the intimacy of that story that Geographic's readers weren't used to seeing, you know. And it, pure and simple, it was just, you know, when I came out of school, we didn't get National Geographic in my house, and I thought it was a pretty boring magazine. Uh, even in the, the years that the first years I was there and the years right into the 60s, through the 60s and 70s when we thought the color reproduction was pretty good. When you look back now, God, it wasn't very good at all. I mean, it was very porous and everything. Look Magazine, which was Gravure, had nicer color reproduction. But that story, it was purely the intimacy of the subject and the approach, I think. I saw real people, and, they, and of course it was a subculture, you know, so it was a look, an intimate look at a subculture, people that nobody else really knew about. Uh, and I mean, Geographic has done that for years, that magazine's based on, on dealing with subcultures and exotic things. I've never liked the word exotic because I think that's very often in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. I want to talk about something about your photographs. There's two statements that you've made. One is that you like photographing at at things that are primarily at the edges of of a scene or, or a photograph. And the other thing you've said is about um, making images simpler in in the fact that you're taking extraneous things out. And looking at your photographs, I see that you're working primarily by the looks of it with normal to wider focal lengths. And, and when you're working with wider focal lengths, they become so much more inclusive that it can make that act of making things simple, um, but still vibrant, a, a challenge. And I'm hoping you could sort of give us some insight into, into terms of that sensibility on those two points in terms of how you make your photographs, particularly that exploration of the edges. Well, the edges, let's, as for an example, uh, if I'm going to a, a blues festival, and I, I, I think of, uh, I photographed, in 1997, I photographed black blues music, which I never used to be able to say, what's your favorite assignment, but I would have to probably say it was that year when I could just follow and listen to great music and make pictures. Uh, because if I were not a writer, photographer, I'd be in music. I'm from a musical background. But if I'm at a blues festival, for instance, I go to the stage crew and I say, look, uh, I, I can't be down in that pit down there in front of the, 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 sta the stage where the musicians are. I said, we're not going to use a picture like that. It's too common. It's too whatever. Not that you can't make some good pictures down for there. But I said, 
I like to be around the edges. I need to be in the wings. I need to be around, because that's where the moments are. That's where those other moments are. It's not in the performance as much as it is around the performance. You know, I'm a, you know, I, one of my heroes uh, among painters, and I've, I've been influenced by painters over the years, I think, a lot more than other photographers. And that's, that doesn't, I'm not trying to make myself sound elitist or anything. I just love looking at painters. And, um, of course, they, had ex- they have ex- exclusionary uh, abilities that, that photographers don't have. Well, we do have it now in, in digital, but it, as, a, as a documentary photographer, I can't mess around uh, taking things out of an image digitally because I'm, that's just going against the core of honesty. Anyway, so the, it's, it's around those edges. Uh, that's where I'll find the most interesting light often, you know, uh, in, the, in those interesting moments. Uh, maybe it's prior somebody coming on stage, and it doesn't always have to be theatrical. It might be a football game. It could be anything, but it's it's around those edges that you find those those real real special moments. And then, uh, yes, it would be fair to say my workhorse lenses have always been uh, thirty-five, twenty-eight in in the days of. Fixed focus lenses, which I sometimes wish I could force myself to go back to, because there's, especially with reflex cameras, you know, you get you get a a, a really good uh, multi uh, focal length zoom lens, and you put a sh- lens hood on it, it looks like going out to mortar a village. <laughs> Terribly, you're not going to be a fly on a wall, that's for sure. Uh, but anyway. And then a 50. I think a 50 is a really fine lens because I think it's a good disciplinarian lens. So you can use it as a good portrait lens, and it, and it forces you to select. Uh, now, if I've... I sent a lens back to Nikon recently that they had sent me, 14 to 24, because I was afraid I'd start using it uh, at those real wide things. You know, if you've got it, it's so easy to crank that out. And... It's not that I have anything against wide, wide, uh, wide lenses. I don't. They're they're extremely uh, helpful in certain cases. But I can remember workshop after workshop, uh, not so much recently, but in past years, I'd get somebody there, a student with a portfolio. I'd see everything was done with a 24. Well, my feeling is the wider the optic, and my my feeling is the wider the optic the more difficult it is to use really well. Now, if you've got the talent of Eugene Richards, you know, have at it. He uses it, and it's really a signature of a lot of his work sometimes. But uh, I think a lot of kids, I want to say kids, everybody's a kid now, I guess, but uh, you'll think, oh, they're getting everything. Well, maybe they're not getting anything because nothing's tied together. You know, you take that chunk of space and you're putting together a puzzle. Making making a photograph, even in a studio, and, you know, I'm, I'm not a studio guy at all. I'm, I'm a street shooter. But you take that piece of space and, and put it together. You're going to put it together one way. James Knockway is going to put it together another way. That science teacher in a workshop is going to put it together another way. You know, it's... it's, it's and, and there are some ways that are better than others, pure and simple. But the fact of the matter is, it's got to fit. Where's your sense of balance? Where's your sense of grace? Uh, 
all these things, all these things um, really count. And I also kind of preach on the similarities between uh, the disciplines of good writing and good photography. And the old Hemingway's thing, which is basically what you exclude, is every bit as important as what you include. What you include, you've, you've, you know, you've got to cut away, cut away, cut away. Get rid of the extraneous. Get rid of what you don't need. What don't you need in that picture? If you don't need it, get rid of it. You know, that's, that's pretty simple. And sometimes, of course, you have to do this in the fraction of a moment. You, you originally... Sometimes you're lucky. Sometimes, and sometimes you don't think of it. You, know, often you really want that in your subconscious. You've, you originally wanted to be a writer, and you still do some writing uh, now. I know you did. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, you have a, a blog now, you, and you've written extensively in each of your books. And you've written about how important it is for a writer to have a voice, but you also say it's important for a photographer to have a voice. You just read my recent blog, yeah. didn't you? Uh-huh. <laughs> and I posed the question, what do you mean? How can a photographer have a voice? Exactly. Well, now, now you're asking me to back that up. <laughs> well, I think, I, think, I think photographer does have a voice, the way they see. Uh, you know, Martin, I know if you're familiar with Martin Parr's work, the British. Absolutely, magazine. yeah. Well, boy, if anybody's got a voice, that's Martin. I mean, look at, you look at... Some of the nicest compliments I've gotten over the years has been somebody who said, you know, gee, I saw a picture in the geographic. I thought that, I thought, I bet that's Allard, and I was right. You know, when you get, and, and there's a danger there, of course, to say, okay, well, he's talking really about a style. I don't like to call it a style, and I don't like to, you know, somebody is consciously going out to create a style. Well, that might work. Uh, and it might just be uh, imposing something on yourself you don't need. I think a style develops with its with time. I think my way of working developed because I came out of a black and white world, didn't know any better, and just continued to to shoot in very very difficult or or no, I won't say difficult uh, low light conditions when if with early color film. That kind of uh, gave that 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 was my voice developing at that point. When I think about it now, now what is my voice? I'm not sure. You know, I'm not sure. Uh, but I, I do think uh, photographers do have a voice in the way they see. One of my favorite essays of yours was the one that you did on minor league baseball, and I think it's a perfect example uh, of you exploring the the edges because they're they're not a bunch of shots of you know guys no. playing playing baseball it's i it's, don't think there's an action picture in that whole damn story there there might be uh, uh i think we ran a picture in davenport iowa looking down on the field i made from the rooftop of the mississippi river in the background the pitcher is in his classic position uh or, or i think he's either throwing the ball or he's he's in his uh, uh wind up but otherwise, there were pictures around the edges. And, and what's remarkable about it is that that essay says so much more about what baseball really is than anything I would have seen in Sports Illustrated. And well, t tell us about the shaping of that story and the choices you made in terms of how and where you, you photograph these athletes and their families. Well, there's a couple things I'll tell you that's kind of, they're, they're kind of good for a laugh, actually. I got it. I was then, let's see, that was 1990. I was freelancing. Um, 
working regularly for Geographic, hadn't insulted anybody yet, and wasn't doing anything. And I got a call, but I didn't have an assignment lined up, and I always get, ner- I would always get nervous when I didn't have a, an assignment lined up, something I really wanted to do. You know, I've had some over the years that I, I, I you know, if I'd had my choice, I wouldn't have picked that particular assignment, but you know, I had a wife and family. I had to make a living, so I took. Sometimes I take things that other people haven't wanted, but I managed to get out of that kind of condition um, a few years later. Anyway, I got a call from Tom Kennedy, who was then the director of photography, and he said, "Bill, I was in a hotel someplace. I can't remember where the hell I was." But he said, "I've got two stories here. I just thought you might want to consider." And I said, "What are they, Tom?" He said, "Well, one is Russia." And just me just said Russia. You know, that's a big country. Russia. The whole thing. Jeez. Never been there. I'd been there for the State Department to show pictures in the 70s, but really not ever been there. Seriously. So, well, what's the other one? He said minor league baseball. I mean, you think about it. Could you have a broader spectrum than that? I mean, minor league baseball, the, the American the Nash, not only the, the national pastime, but the national pastime at its at its real Americana level. You know, the, the the lower the. If he'd said Major League Baseball, I'm not sure if that would have caught my ear nearly as much. But I thought, well, let me think about it. And I actually, I think I, I don't even think I called him back. I think I thought about it for just a matter of a few seconds or so, and I thought, well. Tom, I think I'll, I'll take that minor league baseball. And then I went to my hotel room. I, I, that night, I got thinking, Howard, was that the right thing to do? You know, you do Russia. Uh, you get these pictures. They'll sell the stock pictures, although I've been a terrible businessman, so we probably wouldn't even gotten into the agency. Or do baseball, and I thought, wait a minute. No, that was exactly the right choice, because they'll always do another story on Russia or whatever Russia becomes. They will never, ever again do a story on minor league baseball. And, you know, it was the, it was the sport I grew up with. I wasn't really good at it. Uh, I got beamed as a young kid because I was fairly athletic. And I'd get asked to play with the older kids. And one day, one of the older kids uh, was using me as a... Uh, I'd stand up like I was holding a bat, and he was pitching. He hit me right in the head. and That kind of spooked me at the plate from then on. But... Uh, it was a, you know, that was a sport that, that when, and it was a sport. And when I grew up, when the heroes stayed heroes, you didn't hear much. Oh, you kind of heard that Babe Ruth liked to drink beer and eat a lot of hot dogs and maybe had a, a couple of girls besides his wife or something. But it wasn't like you know today. And I took that on and um, managed to convince the travel department that I should have a convertible. Because uh, I thought, you know, I want to drive alongside the, the, the bus sometimes, and the guys on the bus, I could take pictures. Uh, and I remember the first, I, I, you know, I, I had to, con- I concentrated on the, mil- the, uh, the, the Braves, the Atlanta Braves farm system, because the writer who had brought the story to Geographic, David Lamb, he'd grown up in Boston when the Braves were in Boston, then they moved to. Uh, um, Milwaukee, and then they uh, and then they moved to Atlanta. But anyway, I concentrated on their system, 
and I I did a couple others too, but mostly that farm system. And I concentrated on the lowest areas, the rookie league, class A, and some double A. Not very little triple A because triple A is that's the, those guys are so close to what they call the show, making it in the big leagues. Mm-hmm. They're the kids down on the bottom. I mean, one out of fourteen of those kids will ever make it to the big leagues, but they can always tell their kids or their grandkids, hey, I played ball as a pro, you know. And uh, so I hung out with those guys, and all of them were much younger than I was and all that, but uh, I, I I remember going on my first, first road trip. I was with the Stockton Ports out of Stockton, California, and they were, the bus was going to go to Reno, and I was following in this little place, Christ Little LeBaron Convertible, with the top down and going by all these orange groves in California, and I can still just think I'm inhaling the fragrance of all those orange trees and uh, good music. Y'all, y'all got to have good music no matter where you are, what you're doing. Good music is a driving force, but uh, it was a fun story. It was really a fun story to do. It's yeah. a beautiful, beautiful result. Um, do you still get nervous when you begin an assignment? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if it's nervous, uh, fear, or doubt. I, I hope it's not self-doubt. It's just that, you know, okay, what do I do now? Because I, I'm, you know, I don't over-research. Sometimes I've done stories with geographics research. People will give me, you know, five pounds of stuff, and maybe I'll get through it, maybe I won't. I've never wanted to over-research it, and I, well, I can't even remember the last time I asked anybody what what it was like when they were at a certain place because I didn't really want to hear that. I just wanted it to be as fresh as it can be. But I think, I, I think for instance, I'll give you, a, 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 give you an example. I'm working on a story now in northern Montana. Uh, northern Montana, what they call the High Line, which is basically where the, the Great Northern Railroad came across in the turn of the last century. And the story is based on the coming of the railroad and the homesteaders that followed, many of whom were really sold a bill of goods on how, what a paradise that was going to be up there, the dry land farming, you know, geez, uh, when they had the Homestead Act, and then they enlarged it, and a lot of those people found out even when they started with 160 acres, then they would really get 320, and even with 320 in those days where you they didn't get any rain or a lot of people just had to walk away from that. But in reading about the history of the homesteaders and their coming of the railroad, it's it's such a strong history that I think, God, how am I going to do justice to this? You know, uh, you know, it's so much about being in the right place at the right time. I purposely went out in February of this year for a couple of weeks because I heard about this rancher who, and a number of them will calve. They'll have their calving season February. And I thought, well, gee, February in Montana, northern Montana, that could be dicey. You know, that could be, because that weather can be brutal. So I spent a lot of geographics money on cold weather gear, and I went out for two weeks, and the coldest it ever got was like five below one morning, and I was actually working with a railroad crew out there repairing the, the rail, railroad lines or tracks. But I asked this Joe, this rancher, I said, well, how cold has it ever been when you've been calving? He said, 50 below. Not wind, not wind chill. 
Fifteen arms, because when it's that cold, you don't really usually have much wind. But, of course, it wasn't that cold when I was there. And so I, I got some wintry-looking things. But, I, you know, I wanted to be there when it really got tough. Um, because when it gets that, when they get that 50 below, that's the same kind of weather those homesteaders had. And they were living in 12 by 14 shacks, tar paper shacks with no insulation. And I, you know, I often wonder how many, and I, and I wanted to do something on the story where I have some women as subjects because women came out as homesteaders sometimes by themselves. They might have come out with a brother. They might have left a drunk husband in St. Paul and came out with a couple of kids trying to make a start. Or they, maybe, they, and maybe they got out and they got married. And then it was a real bad year, and the, the husband had to go to the nearest town to find some kind of work. She had to stay back there with those two kids and listen to that wind blow every day, just howl. And it makes you wonder how many of those women kind of just lost their minds out there. So anyway, uh, I, didn't, I got wintry stuff in February, and then I came back in my home in Virginia. I'm not planning to go back until sometime in late May for branding. And I wasn't really paying much attention to the weather. And in that same area, in the Sweetgrass Hills, where I'd worked in February, they had three storms in early May. One, they told me on one day, uh, the wind was blowing uh, blowing snow got, uh, with steady winds at 50 with gusts to 90. One guy lost 20% of his lamb crop. Uh, another guy that I'd worked with lost a number of calves and a couple of foals. And he and his wife told me how they went out one day and they found a foal, picked it up. He was driving a big tractor with a front-end loader. And she was in the in the dump, you know, in the, in the bucket of the front-end loader with that foal wrapped in a, a blanket. And all I could think of was that was the picture I needed. Mm. That would have started this story. That would have told so much, but I wasn't there. And even if I had been in Shelby, which is like 30 or Shelby, Montana, up on the High Line, which is 30, 40 miles from their ranch, I couldn't have gotten to them because it's that kind of weather. Mm -hmm. So in this case, uh, and I thought maybe living in Montana would be an advantage, but this is such a big state that if I go out, as I will Saturday morning, I'll go back up on the High Line, and I've got a whole day's drive ahead of me before I can do anything, and that eats up a lot of time. But it, that, that's kind of a, uh, a long answer to your question about it's, it's not a fear. It's, it's a, you, you feel a responsibility. You re, uh, there's a responsibility to the subject and to the people you work with to get it, to get it good, to get it right. Well, the last question I always ask is I ask a photographer to suggest another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. So who would that, and a photographer can be anyone. It can be someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be for you and why? Oh, boy. Um, uh, I suppose I might disappoint a bunch of people, but uh, it's got to be one. Okay. Mm. I especially like the vision of Alex Webb. Uh, he makes a lot of photographs with a lot of moving parts. Uh, he can certainly work the edges of anything as well as anybody. Uh, his color, 
uh, it's got a lot of impact. There was a time when I thought he had more, uh, he had the impact without as much content. But as he has evolved, his content continues to get better and better. So um, to young photographers or whomever, if they don't know his work, I think he's certainly someone that they should look at. Well, thank you so much for, for <laughs> taking your time and sharing your, your beautiful work with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been my pleasure being with you. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the show. If you have any comments, please email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com or post a message on the blog at thecandidframe.com. You can also join our growing community on Twitter, Facebook, and Flickr. Links to each can be found on the blog. Till next time, this is Ibarian X Pirello, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.